Human bonds always lead to messy complications. Commitment, sharing, driving people to the airport. Hello, Dexter Morgan fans, and welcome to the Dexter New Blood Wrap-Up Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Reynolds, writer and producer of the original Showtime series, Dexter, and now the new Showtime special event series, Dexter New Blood. Today, we're discussing Dexter's evolution over the course of the original series, specifically his struggle with human connection and his attempts to feel alive. And very appropriately, we are here with a few of the folks responsible for bringing him to life, a couple of my favorite human beings, Joining me is Lauren Gussis. I may call her Gus now and again, so don't be stunned by that world. But uh, Lauren Gussis, Dexter writer and executive producer. Hello, Lauren. Hi. Hey, it's man. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you, you for me? calling me Gus. It, it harkens back very warm memories. Very few people call me that anymore. <laughs> Yay! I'm a lucky I know, one. It's... And Marcos Siega, Dexter director, and also executive producer and director on the upcoming Dexter New Blood. Hello, Marcos. Hello, Scott. Hello, Lauren. Yeah, man, we, we spent Hi. about eight months in the wilds of Boston and Massachusetts, huh? We did, we did. That was the most fun. I miss it every day. I do too. It's weird, right? Like, yeah. Going it was intense, but it was great. Uh, so let's go back to the beginning. I mean, the three of us were there at the beginning. I was a writer assistant on the show, so I was in the, in the room taking notes, Throwing out ideas here and there. And Lauren, Gus, Please, you were... Uh, here and there. Come on. A lot. <laughs> like MVP. <Yeah. laughs> well, that's very kind. Uh, you, you too, Gus. I mean, Gus, you were a staff writer. I did. Um, I so grew up there. You, yeah. The two of us did. Yeah, yeah. And Marcos... I was a huge fan. And I... That's right. um, and I called my agents and said, how do I get on this show? And uh, went and had a meeting with Clyde and... Sarah and John Goldwyn, I think. Yep. The three of them. And uh, it, that was fun. And, and uh, <laughs> season two came along and then Clyde called and said, I'd like you to come do episodes two. And then he gave me another one later in the season. And then so you that just, was season season two. Season two. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you uh, a fan, as was I, like when I saw that pilot. We saw uh, that pilot I together. Think, that's right. We saw it together when we were working on uh, E-Ring. That's right. When Back in the days when DVDs were still passed around for pilots. <laughs> and we all popped yeah. it in and watched it during lunch. Yeah. I remember, Scott, you were super excited to watch it. And I was like, ugh, yeah. murder. Like, not my jam. <laughs> and we watched it together. And you and I were like, our jaws dropped. And like, how do we get on the yeah. show? And you, Scott, got me the job on the yeah. show. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, di I didn't get you the job. No, but, but you it was your enormously. It was your work, but I, yeah, I, I told Clyde that you put I, in a good I was work. such a big fan of you. Yeah. Well, what, the yeah. other thing I remember is that you said, Clyde, I am literally working with Deb. She has an office next to mine. She talks like her. Right. You have to meet this That's person. Right. That's right. <laughs> and you were the voice of, I mean, honestly, you were, you were our go-to for Deb at all times. Fair. Every, everybody's script, you would... You would give a little Deb polish over it, including yeah. I don't know how much how freely I can speak, but yes, I did. Yeah, um, freely, uh, yeah, including yeah. the pilot. Clyde let me rewrite the Deb scenes in the pilot because yeah. in my original interview, you know, he said a lot of people didn't respond well to that character in the pilot, 
And my response to that was like, I understand why, but it's because of the attitude, because she comes across as needy instead of knowing that she becomes the best version of herself when Dexter's around. And so we made adjustments in the scenes to empower her so that it wasn't just like solve this problem for me. It was for whatever reason, because of the chemistry between us, I become more me when I'm with you. Yeah. And so that slight shift um, helps her be embodied and I think much more likable. And also I introduced the word douchebag into her vocabulary right. at that time. <laughs> I, I had no idea you were the voice of Deb. Yeah, oh. I think that's very generous to say, but I think that's, that's largely the reason I got hired on the show because I had a very strong point of view on her. Yeah, and, and yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting knowing Jennifer because she's so not Deb personally when you speak to her. Absolutely. And I remember at some point, I think during season one, she kind of got hip to it, either because we told her or because it's kind of clear just talking to me. Yeah, you'd be on set and it'd be like, wait, was that Deb or was that Gus? And I (laughs) I saw Jennifer kind of like eyeballing me. I'm like, what is happening? Like, did I do something wrong? Have I offended you in some way? She's like, I'm studying you because I understand that on some level that's who I'm playing. And that was very trippy and (laughs) weird, but also lovely. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. And so as I kind of evolved as a human, I got to kind of throw a lot of that into the show, which was really cool. Yeah, because she grew a lot over the course of eight seasons. She had... She sure did. In a lot of ways, I feel like she changed the most. The things she realized, I mean, my God, from that... Let's talk about that first season, you know, back in that writer's room. Um, When you came on, Lauren, did you do a ton of research about serial killer stuff? Because as you say... It's not necessarily your jam, but it very quickly. It is now. It is now. Yeah, it very quickly became your jam. It was more like I wasn't into doing like cop shows and stuff, but this was not a cop show. It was like a character piece and a dark comedy. Yeah. Um, In the beginning, at least. I mean, I think it evolved over the course of the time, but I think in the beginning, Dexter's voiceover made me laugh so much. And I just, the, the level of irony of the show is what I fall in love with. And also the idea for me, the things I like to write are stories about identity Yes. And Dexter is just like the quintessential outsider story. So I related deeply to that. And so the cop stuff became incidental. And also I knew there would be other people in the room, present company included, that were better at like clue trails and, you know, telling those kinds of stories. Because that, as you know, like that stuff always kind of break, for for many years it broke my brain. It doesn't anymore. Um, The thriller part, the exciting part, the horror stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, And and fusing these two things together in, in right. Dexter and all the characters around him was what right. sort of set this show apart, I think, from right. Absolutely. anything else. I mean, um, I, so you, I did not. Yeah. I, I am, I am um, embarrassed to say I did not do a ton of serial killer research before I started the show. Um, I kind of wanted to come in and, and have, uh, like, the freedom to just have my own perspective yeah. on what it was yeah. going to be so that I could just bring the character element and not be clou- clouded, I think, or influenced by what other, you know, what serial killers were supposed to be. Because I think yeah. Dexter wasn't a typical, obviously not a s- typical serial killer. Um, so I just kind of wanted to live into that and live into the dead character. Um, I think over the course of eight years, yes, I read all the books. We all took the sociopath test. I think I won. That's right. <laughs> Dexter as a was a, a turning point for me when I finally got to do it because what drew me to the show, what gave me sort of the confidence to go into the meeting with everyone was uh, the comedy, was the levity. Because prior to Dexter, I had not done anything with any dark element to it. 
and coming out of you know commercial music video world that were very um, leaning into funny. And then um, I'd done a half hour single camera show for Fox and a couple of episodes of Cold Case, but that was that was sort of the anomaly. And I remember talking about the character, but really how the show was entertaining and fun. And I was like, it's so in my wheelhouse. I was coming at it from that side of it. Fast forward to after Dexter, I became the dark guy somehow. Like Dexter going into it was for me fun. There's a light side of this. I can relate to this guy. And then on the, on the outside, when I came out of it, it was, oh, he can do really dark stuff. But Dexter was special in the, in his internal monologue was always, uh, you know, that wry humor, his, um, his point of view. There was always a little bit of a, um, you know, that all knowing I have a secret that played into the, the comedy and then just the characters around them, Masuka and Batista and the thing that I think was so relatable about the comedy was the idea that um, Dexter thought that he felt the way he felt because he was a killer. And I think we all know he felt that way because he was human. I mean, like that feeling of being on the outside, like it wouldn't have been funny if it weren't relatable, right? There, for me, my understanding of like a comedic premise generally is like you laugh because you relate. It's the reason, you know, people laugh in 12-step meetings when people say things that other people might think are <laughs> horrible. Darkest. Like it's because yeah. you're like, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, And so that the point of identification is the thing that causes the laugh and the surprise, obviously. The surprise of like, oh, that actually just came out of your mouth. I can't believe you were that honest. Yeah. And so the level of honesty that Dexter had, right, with just that relationship with the audience um, was what made, what to me, what set the show apart was that there was like an intimacy and a relatability in a place that you thought there was no possible way for intimacy or relatability. To me, the hardest part about the voiceover for Dexter was that they weren't jokes to Dexter. It wasn't, it, he, he wasn't trying to be funny. And anytime we realized we were trying to be funny with a, with a line that Dexter thought he was funny, we knew that didn't work. You know, I mean, there's times when it, when it slipped up, but, but uh, yeah, it was, he, he would state. Uh, for me, the kill scenes were, um, you, you know, everyone talks about how, how Dexter became sort of a lovable serial killer. How is it possible that you can watch somebody murder somebody and still be with them? And it was those, the scenes on the kill table when, you know, he's, he may be earnestly telling someone to shut up and look at what you've done, but the conversation that he had always just felt so real and like, yeah, that's something I would say to somebody. You know, there was levity and it. it was funny to me he wasn't trying to be dark and scary no it's no. interesting that you bring up that moment of like look at what you did because we yeah. had this discussion in the room a lot that he was never scarier than he was in the pilot in that moment and i think we gradually turned that level of um fierceness down so that he because he wasn't he, he evolved from being a monster right like the story it's a story of a monster becoming human on some level it's because as he started interacting with more and more humans, as he started hanging out with uh, with Rita and thinking, all right, maybe I can make a life with Rita. That's you know, then we would sort of design these kills so that they would help him become more human. Like in that one when he um, uh, with the coyotes, yes, the, the married couple that are coyotes. Oh, I just got the chills. 
It was such a, yeah, it was such a, that, 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 this goes to that. Yeah, these coyotes were horrendous. They did terrible things to people. Right. There were dead folks in their, you know, in their barn or whatever it was. Is that the kill in the van with the two, with yes. one on either side? With the, with the couple on either side. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, he's, and he basically learned how to say I love you to Rita from these two deplorable people that were in love. <laughs> because he said, and, and, how do you make it work? Like, how do you do this yes. together? I remember very specifically. Um, yeah. And they looked at each other. They knew they were about to die, and they looked at each other, and they said, we just want a normal life. And yeah. Dexter was like, oh, me too. And that was the thing that he ultimately said to Rita that like, pulled her back in. Was yeah. really- he, he would actually mimic the things yeah. that they said, which it's funny that the, the, the way they became more human was by hanging out with some of the most inhuman people. But it comes to that but honesty, think- right? Yeah. And coming out of for. isolation. And you know, I didn't yeah. know this when I was working on the show, but my understanding of like, the trauma work that I've done since then you know, in my yeah. own personal work, like it's the coming out of isolation that heals trauma. And so in some level, the more he interacted with people, the more he healed his own, that original wound of being in that container. That, that that original trauma wound is where all of these, you know, urges to like, the insatiable urge to like, for blood is yeah. where it came from. As much as it's an uncomfortable thing to say, I think Dexter, even his homicidal tendencies are deeply relatable and I think it's also because, you know, there is a, an element of wish fulfillment in the show. It's sort of a, I mean, it's a, it's a politically, it's a little bit of a political lightning rod. And I'm very interested to see what happens this time around. The idea of someone who deserves it. Yeah. The idea that the wish fulfillment is like, yeah, I get it. I get why you'd want to kill that guy. And like, we're not allowed to, but I get yeah. it. And it's a, there's a sense of justice behind it, a sense of finality behind it. And Marcos, there's definitely a visual language to Dexter back in the day. And there was different, things looked different, right? A kill room looked different than a flashback, which looked different than Miami Metro. But you got to remember as a fan, I was, you just kind of lose yourself in story. And then when I was asked, when I got the show, I felt, okay, how do I step into and honor what they've set up? I think Michael Cuesta did an incredible job on the pilot of creating a tone and a world that was unique. And at the time, there really wasn't anything like it uh, in terms of its shooting style. Michael, was it was really deliberate. It felt like a graphic novel. His lensing and, uh, and then the hard lighting in the kill rooms and then just the, the real sort of contrasty, saturated world of, of Miami day and night. So yeah, I think Michael, and I think Romeo shot the pilot for Michael, they were the ones who kind of set it up. In, in the small world of it all, Romeo and I went to college together, um, not film school, just St. John's and Queens. So I, you know, I was talking to him and I said, I need your help here to kind of make sure that we maintain that look. You know, I did that see episode two of season two. So I came into it. I didn't see a cut of the first episode. All I had was the first season to look at. And I really wanted to do what the pilot did. So... The kill room was, there was a science to it. It was like a hard overhead light that hit the victim, you know, almost like a spotlight. And we were constantly trying to find the motivation for that. So does Dexter put up a light? Is there a light in the room that hangs low? But something to motivate it. And it did have a really unique, specific look. Um, and then the shooting style itself was also the... If you if, think if you did a montage of all the kills, you're going to find that there's a lot of similar shots in every kill. There were just, what is your victim's point of view of Dexter? 
the the setups were all pretty similar, no matter where we put uh, the victim. So no matter how we placed the victim, it was yeah. a, a specific look to that room. But I, I give all that credit to Romeo and to Michael setting it up, because uh, and then Romeo was there the whole time, kind of keeping. He was really the the keeper of the look of of the show. But all of that had a big influence on how I would approach it now. Like when I when we did New Blood, I I had a really um, I didn't want to repeat what the show used to be, and I wanted it to have its own its own look, and then just have touchstones on you know to for the audience, so you could when you see it, you'd go, oh yeah, that's comfort food. That's what it used to be. That's kind of sprinkled throughout the new New Blood. And that was our biggest challenge shooting the seasons in Los Angeles. Was how do we yeah. bring those Miami colors right? So we found we painted a lot of apartment buildings. <laughs> flats and bringing in cars and that were brightly colored because when you're front lighting things they tend to go flat and just Miami has this a bit this the walls and the, on the buildings on the streets and the turquoises and the, just the bright colors really pop so that was something we had to manufacture constantly do you want to talk about like just shooting voiceover scenes shooting scenes with you know whether it was like in the bullpen with Masuka and you know all of his CSI folks and the detectives, or if it's in like very personal scenes, like how did you make space for it and make it seem normal? Is that just all in the editing or? No, well, again, I think it's uh, the visual language of the show that was established in the pilot, right? Because that's where, that's where you see it for the first time. And I actually reached out to Michael Cuesta about that when I first got the job, because we were at the same commercial production company. And I was like, I was curious, like, what is the, you're, you're interrupting a real moment in time, especially when he has the voiceover and you're in a one-on-one conversation, right? Like if it's a yeah. two-hander, uh, because the other person has to sit there and wait or give it space. And there were two parts of it that really interest me, which was, do I need to do anything special camera-wise? Does it have to be uh, something? And the answer was no, because what you as writers write is projected onto Dexter's face when you hear his voiceover. And that's something that I did talk to Michael about. I was like, is there any cue you want to give me? Is there something? And he's like, no, I could be thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. And then my voiceover, he goes, it's a neutral expression that he kind of has. Looking at his face, I'm like, I'm projecting those thoughts onto him. So yeah. the the process was in the beginning was a little like I have more questions than anything like what am I what do I need to do here to make sure that it works the way it worked, but um, it's pretty simple. It's just uh, it's really fun to get in someone's head, and and to be honest, we completely ripped that off when I did you on for you know it's a it's a straight like one hundred and one Dexter ripoff in terms of the voiceover. The writing of that show is amazing and fun. Yeah. It has everything. But in terms of that, I approached it the exact same way when we were shooting it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite voiceover that you remember? I don't remember the exact line, but it's a similar type of thing. It was in, uh, I was shooting Dexter's bachelor party. And there's a moment where he's observing and watching, like, you know, and I remember the shot. It's like a slow motion shot of like these women and they're all top and they're, dancing and you have the guys there, Masuka and Batista, enjoying themselves. And it was whatever Dexter says in that moment. And I, I'm reaching for it, but it was something along the lines of like calling them out as being the weirdos. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I get like trying to figure out how do I do that? How do I, I need to 
like you said, he would take on, he would, he would observe and then learn how to act so he fits in, right? Yeah. I also, Marcus, I think that was my episode, and I remember yes. the way that the shots were of Batista and Masuka, and they were so brilliant, because it really was like Dexter was the sane one in that situation. Yeah, because <laughs> guys are idiots. and I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I just remember there was one moment where Dexter had a thought, and then somebody asked him about his thought, and then he said, did I, in his voiceover, did I just say that out loud? That was my yeah. favorite moment. That like the, when the vo- there are few moments where the voiceover became self-referential. Yeah, it was with Dokes. Uh huh. D- yes, Dokes, Dokes right. flat out repeated what he said, and Dex was like, "Did I just say that?" Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like he read his mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you guys were writing those, the difference between Dexter out in the world talking, you know, the masked Dexter, the the mask that he's putting up, because I, I, I found when like when Dexter was talking to his colleagues. He was like almost like a shy, reserved kind of guy. Like there's, there's something about, he wasn't shy, but he just, he didn't put himself out there. Slow to warm, I think, is what the uh, people in the psychotherapy community would call him. And observant. Like even where he was stationed, yeah, where he was stationed in the police station, he just watched everything. He saw what everyone was doing. He's like the middle child, you know, in uh who watches the big brother who gets in trouble all the time and then learns from that. You know, it's like Dexter had to learn how, what it was like to be human. And this works with, I mean, this is one of the dangers they say with um, like psychopaths and sociopaths taking, doing um, group therapy is that they just absorb all of it and learn how to become, in quotations, human, which makes them actually more dangerous. And that's what he was doing, right? Just You felt it when you watched it, but you, you don't really go, oh, he's, doing one thing and then doing another. It's just kind of rolled all into each other. But when, and when you look back, and as you're, you guys are talking about it, I'm like, it's really interesting. I, of course, his voice is different in his inner monologue, but I, I don't think I ever really intellectualized that. I mean, it's, he's, he's a master of compartmentalization. And mm. so he has like his front of the house behavior and his back of the house behavior. His and back when of the, house the worlds collide, it, it can be very explosive. My favorite moment maybe in the entire series is yeah. hello Dexter Morgan. Like yeah. talk about two worlds colliding. Like when uh, you know when Lithgow walks into the station. The way that scene was shot too like you feel it. You feel ev- the the walls just like closing in on him. And also I think you know we talked a little bit about like what is the metaphor of like a regular person life and then how do you put it through the prism of Dexter? You know, so like yeah. for somebody else this is the moment where you get caught having an affair. Right, yeah. <laughs> But for Dexter, it's like some dude that he's chasing walking into the police station. And that's why it's still, it's funny because yeah. the, the actual human experience is arguably terrible and, you know, like more, morally bankrupt also. But then to be like, oh, that's the feeling I'm getting, but it's so not that is yeah. even if you don't intellectually understand that's what's happening, it's evoking those same emotions. And that's why it's weirdly funny and horrific at the same time. And with stakes higher than ever before. Because totally. now, yeah, yeah, now murder is gonna, it's gonna happen, and yeah. and and again, like Dexter's pursuit of Trinity was all about: can I be a dad and a and a a, a husband? Can I love can a I family? Have it all? Can, yeah, I, have can it all? I have it all? Can I have it all? The discussion in the room was about the contrast between the woman who is right for Dexter, who yeah. we created Lila to be, and then yeah. the woman who's right, right, which is Rita. Like she's the yeah. good, the smart choice, right? Yeah. It's- and the intention was really that we wanted him to want to pick Lila. 
at the end of the day. And we were very anxious about the idea that Dexter would kill his girlfriend. It was like, that's really like, that's telecide. Like, there's no coming back from that. Yeah. And at some point, she emerged as such a deplorable character that our plans went out the window. You yeah. know? Well, but it was just like, you can't, you have, he has to kill her. He has to kill her. Well, and we all, yeah, were all rooting about- for it. And it was so great. Like, we were wrong. I love the moments that we were wrong. Like, we yeah. thought that it was going to go in one direction, and then the relationship had a life of its own. And yeah. we were able to look at it and be like, oh, no, it's actually, we'll lose the, our audience if we don't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the, the, the other women that Dexter fell in love with. So we've got Lumen, and we've got Hannah. Yeah. Uh, two very different people, by the way, too. Like, different things that Dexter needed with Lumen, with season five. Like, Dexter was at his absolute worst, right? He mm-hmm. lost his wife. He felt like a failure, couldn't protect anybody. Uh, he was angry, had nowhere to go with it. And then in came this person that he could sort of... Rescue. Rescue, exactly right, yeah. Like he needed, I mean, for some, in some way, it was about him trying to balance the scales. Yeah. Like if I can, can rescue Can I be the, person, an Avenger? Yeah. Right, because I, I couldn't save the woman that I loved. Um because it was already over, which is, like, so chilling. Um, yeah. Did you know that going into the season, just in, in terms of his relationship and where that would go, or were you informed at all by the casting choices and how they worked together? I think we knew that there was going to be a love story. Yeah. That he, of course, was going to fall in love with this person who saw him in the way... I think that's what it was, right? That it, in, in some way, Dexter wasn't able to really fall in love with the person. He fell in love with who he became with that person because he wasn't fully able to create an intimate connection. And so, other than with his kill victims. Yeah. Um, and so, because Lumen saw him as this hero figure, he fell in love with her because she made him feel about himself the way that he couldn't feel about himself seeing Rita in that pool of blood on the bathroom floor. Like, he, Lumen viewed him as a success where he had failed with Rita. Yeah. And so he fell in love with that feeling. Of, of being that guy. I mean, the challenge of it was like, how do you, what circumstance of a killer or group of killers will create a, I am loath to use this term, but damsel in distress. That's kind and of then, what he needed though, yeah. He did, and then I think yeah. some, if I remember correctly, I'm ho- hopefully I'm not revising history here um, through a 2021 perspective, but I do think that we then took great um, pains to make sure that we could empower her throughout the course of that season. Because if she needed to be rescued and she had been brutally sexually abused, we couldn't just tell a story about a woman who needed a man to save her. We needed to tell a story about him giving her the opportunity to co-save herself. She grew past him. So we had a lot of discussions about, you know, the setup was that he needed to be the savior. And then how do we flip it on its ears so that it's not just a typical, like, oh, you know... The knight comes and saves the the princess from the castle, and then Hannah was a completely different thing. Um, totally different because they they were sort of like uh, they were alike. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this sort of like feeling that Dexter thought I had a he thought he had a future, and he dreamed of a future, which mm-hmm. is something he, he had never really done up to that point. Really, it had all been very, what's the next kill? What's the next thing? You know, one foot in front of another kind of. But with her and with with Harrison. He thought he had this future ahead of himself that he could dream of, that I'll 
work at the police station. I'll go find somebody. I'll kill them. I'll come home. Hannah, I'll have some dinner on the table. They'll talk openly about, yeah, I killed this, uh, you know, this uh, murderer today. Uh, it was fun. <laughs> uh, just like a normal, a normal life. Which because right, she could hold space for who he really was. Yes. I don't know. I, I wrote that up because I, I always wrote the sex episodes. So literally any episode where Dexter had sex, like I wrote it. And, yep. <laughs> and I wrote that episode with the two of them and like the magical Santa land and the snow on the kill table. And it, I just remember that moment of like, oh, right. She sees him for who he really is. So it's like actually the first time he's having intimacy. Even though he's had sex before, it's the first time that that's real for him. It was remarkable to watch that play out in real time, you know? And you then, because you understood it. You understood like yeah. how he could, because I do think that with Rita, he imagined a future for himself. And so when he came home and found true. her in that, but it was like not a realistic yeah. one. It was the fantasy. Yes. And so yeah. I just love the metaphor of like, you know, failed marriages happen all the time. And like you wake <laughs> up to the fact that the thing that you thought was going to happen on your wedding day doesn't happen. And then how long does it take for you to like be willing to open yourself up again? And what does it take? What do you learn from the last relationship that yeah. you didn't get in the first one that lets you find your new partner? And he yeah. did all of that. Like, he did a very human process. He just did it through the prism of, like, his needs are that he's a killer and he needs someone that's cool with it. But I think that's amazing, right? That he actually went through a normal psychological process of something that's so abnormally psycholo- like, psych- psychologically abnormal. And another one of my favorite moments was, um, as far as the Dexter being honest, was that moment when he's holding little baby Harrison in his arms and he looks down at him and he says, daddy kills people. Oh my God, the best. <laughs> yeah, the and best. that just goes to his, the, the, thing, the thing we love about him so much is that, that he just wants to be honest and true and open. And then by the time we got to the end, um, a true psychopath wouldn't have left Miami. A true psychopath wouldn't have realized that he's a monster. That The tragedy sort of is that... Um, he thought he was such a monster that he had to separate himself from everyone when really uh, that shows how human you are, right? Yeah, that, and that moment with uh, baby Harrison is so incredibly relatable to anyone <laughs> with a child because yes. um, I, I remember I, I had a, 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 a baby about the same age when, and I believe I shot that scene, or one exactly like it, where he's, yeah, he picks him up out of the crib and holds him. And I remember doing it and thinking, yeah, this is what I do every night when I get home. And I'll go and, and tell my baby who can't really understand me all about my day. I'm the most honest, right? Because I'm like, and this is what daddy did today. You know, because it's you, just interacting with this. So that moment is so incredibly humanizing, a monster. <laughs> it's great. I'm just remembering that I was pregnant in the last season of Dexter. And so my son literally was privy to all the conversations in the writer's room. So anytime he does anything to act out, um, my husband is like, it's because he was in the Dexter writer's room. Like he's, <laughs> he blames all of it on, uh, on the show. <laughs> like anytime he's mad, it's like, no, but like he's the, he was the Dexter baby. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you all for coming on to the podcast. This was awesome. I miss seeing you guys every day because we saw each other every day, whether it was the past year on New Blood or eight years in a writer's room. 
I don't know how to do life without Scott Reynolds in a writer's room with me. It's very It's sad. so good. It's so good. <laughs> life with Gus. All right, well, thank you guys so much. Um, and that's a wrap for this week's episode. Listen every Tuesday and subscribe to the Dexter New Blood wrap-up wherever you get your podcasts. And watch Dexter New Blood Sundays starting November 7th, only on Showtime.